Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available in iTunes for free. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. This week's guest is drummer and composer Kendrick Scott. His new album is The Source. From that album, here's View from Above. My guest is drummer and composer Kendrick Scott. He's got a new album, which he's just released, with his collaborative band, Oracle. It's my pleasure to welcome Kendrick Scott to the show today. Kendrick, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. Let's talk about this record. It's a really eclectic album, a fantastic collection of players on it. And I'm wondering, is there in your mind some a unifying theme or approach that holds the album together? The unifying thing that holds it together is actually the variety that it has. Uh, I have so many different influences and so many of the people that actually were in the band and played on the CD inspire me in so many different ways and that's why I had each of them on the CD because in my growth they've all inspired me in some ways. I have people there from my high school, I have people there from my college career from uh, and even from my career after school. And they've all inspired me in a certain way, and it all comes together as as one piece in all the music that's on the CD. When you were writing this record, did you have these people in mind? Did did you write these tunes as a as a project for this record, or has have they been kind of evolving over time? Yeah, the tunes have mainly been evolving over time. Some of them I wrote in high school, and then a lot of them I wrote in college. So it's kind of been evolving. Some of the tunes. They started off as something completely different, and on the record, they they came to be what they are. So I'm I'm really proud that um, I just got that out of my system. You know what I mean? 
today I'm actually writing for the new record. The, the, the record I'm going to be writing for is going to be the music for the CD. But I'm really happy that we got into the vibe we got into for those for that music. Hey, you uh, came up in Houston, right? Yes, Houston, Texas. Which has a, an amazing uh, music scene of its own. And even though it's often a place, I think, that gets overlooked when people talk about great music towns, there's been uh, quite quite a collection of musicians who've come out of Houston. Will you talk a little bit about what growing up in Houston was like for you as a drummer and uh, as a musician? Well, as as a musician, uh, I was always surrounded by musicians because uh, my family, everybody in my family pretty much plays an instrument. My my mother and my father played uh, instruments and my brother also. So And also grew up in the church, in the Baptist church. So I was always around music, gospel music, R&B and jazz and all kind of different types of music. So for me growing up in the in that environment was great in just that I was just around music so much that I was just engrossed in music so much that it became so natural. And then also the tradition of strong drummers coming out of Houston was so strong that I was easily taught or, or easily saw how great drummers could be. I ended up following a lot of those guys up to the East Coast up here. You know, uh, so guys like Sebastian Whitaker, Eric Harlan, Chris Dave, Mark Simmons, and uh, a guy younger than me, Jamara Williams. They're all great drummers from Houston. And they're guys that are still there in Houston, Gary Mays and Eric Porter and all these guys that are still influencing younger kids. And it's just a slew of musicians, and especially drummers from Houston, you know. You mentioned some guys like Eric Harland. Are are these people who you had a lot of contact with when you were in Houston? I'm not sure what the age difference is between Eric was graduating as I was coming in. So we didn't actually go to school at the same time. But uh, when Eric would come back from New York, he went to Manhattan school, and he would come back from New York. You know, he would come around the school and hang out and tell us stories and, and play with the different cats at school. And, and that's how I knew of Eric. Uh, Chris Dave went up to Howard, and then he actually was back in Houston, I think, by the time I was, you know, out and about on the, on the music scene in Houston and at my high school. It wasn't the closest relationship as me seeing Harlan day to day, but, you know, every holiday or every uh, time he would come back to Houston, I would always see him and hear him. He was a big influence on me. When did you start thinking about music as a career or as a serious pursuit? I think around the age of 14, when I when I made it into the performing arts high school that I went to, uh, it's called HSPVA, I knew when I got into that school that that's what I wanted to do. And I think even before that, uh, I knew, because I didn't have many other interests other than music, and really nothing gave me goosebumps like music did. Coming from a family of musicians, it was acceptable you know which is uh which I'm really grateful for that my interest was even spurred greater just knowing that my family would support me you know in 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 my endeavor to be a musician so when you were 14 did you say you know mom dad I'm, I think I might want to do this for a living I don't remember myself saying that I've just always had tunnel vision and knowing what I wanted to do. I think it was very clear to everyone, by the way I practiced and uh, played music, that that's what I wanted to do. Did you start gigging when you were still uh, at the High School of Performing Arts? Yeah. One of the great things about our high school is that our instructor actually sent us out on gigs. 
in high school. So at age 14 and on up, we had gigs throughout high school with uh, certain combos. And what he would do is uh, you keep keep your grades up at a certain level, and you could have maybe three to four gigs a week. But for a high school student to to make good grades and also get you some good money, <laughs> that's that's great incentive, you know. And so during that time, that was the the greatest time for us to actually learn how to play, you know. Uh, I think a lot of education goes into practicing, but still you still need the practical use of playing. So, you know, we learned how to go to a gig at 14 and 15 and how to set up and, you know, talk to people and, you know, deal with the contracts and all that. We were doing that at 14 and 15 and playing. So I think that's where we got a huge advantage over other people at different schools. That's why I feel so blessed to be from that high school and from Houston. Now, you said some of the tunes on The Source you wrote while you were still in high school. Can you talk about which ones those are? Well, the first one uh, was actually VCB, which is the initials of like one of my first girlfriends, actually. And her name is Vesta. And I wrote that for her. I hooked up with actually with Robert Glasper, who signed the Blue Note now. And uh, we were two years apart. And I just got with them, and that was like one of my first endeavors in writing. So I came up with a melody, and I had a form together, and, and Robert sat down and helped me at the piano with some chords and everything. That's the way that one came out. I mean, it was really it was really crazy because it was so on a whim. Uh, uh, I don't know. We were just sitting around, and I was like, man, you know, check out this song I was writing, you know. We were watching TV, and he so nonchalantly, like, helped me. You know, it was just like, yo, I'm writing this tune. He came over, and he's like, oh, is this what you're trying to do? I was like, yes, yes, that's it, that's it. He's like, wait, wait. And and uh, then he's like, okay, you got it. And I was like, no, 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 do it again so I can write it down, you know. And I was taking forever writing it down. It was such a hilarious point in time because, I, you know, I was just really learning how to notate everything, and, you know, it was a funny thing. The other one that I had from high school was Search for an Oasis. I kind of started writing that one. It was it mainly started out as a vamp and it ended up as a vamp on the record, but it was a whole song actually that that uh, we didn't actually put on the CD. We just vibed off of the first part of the song, and uh, that one was kind of I was in a, actually a, a psychology class and we were talking about. Uh, the search for truth and uh, truth and, you know, all the 
things that surround that, and that's what where the name comes from. It means the the search for truth. You know? the guitar the guitar is really prevalent on this record uh there's a couple three great guitar yeah. players on this record uh, tell us who they are and then talk about why uh why you use the guitar so much in this album well chordal instruments are my favorite instruments actually and uh the guitar is is one that touches me very deeply because it has such a wide range of textural things that you can do with it and so for me each of the guitarists Lage Lund was one, Lionel Luike and Mike Marino. Each of them have such a different approach to it. I couldn't just have one guy. I was like, oh, I got to have Lionel. Oh, I got to have, you know. So I was going back and forth between the guys because Lionel has the rhythmic element that I love. Uh, Mike has the, the lushness and the uh, the atmospheric vibe that I love. And Lage has the direct tone and swinging tone that I love so I play with all the guys at different times so again it, it was just a a realization of of all the uh the influences that these guys the way they've influenced me all throughout my career playing so I just had all the guys on there but I think I really would love to play guitar but I don't you referred to this album in another interview I read as a, a snapshot of where you are now. It strikes me though that it's almost more like a scrapbook. I mean, it seems to it seems to cover your life up to now, as opposed to just being this moment. Because as you said, it it covers high school and college and people that you met in both places, music that you wrote in both places, and now your professional career is all brought together on this record. Right. Actually, that that is very true. That is very true. And uh, in, in my Assessment of the record-making process, I called it a snapshot because I noticed a lot of times, uh, and this is the way I was, in approaching the making of the CD, I was really scared in actually making it and putting it out. Like I was saying, Terrence, Terrence was telling me, you know, this is only a snapshot of this time, and that hopefully later on when you make more CDs, people can, you know, see your growth throughout your record making. So that's what I meant by a snapshot then. But I definitely know what you mean as as far as uh, this, just the combination of people throughout my career and that I've touched my life. This is definitely the the pinnacle of, of all of those people's influence on me uh, with the source. What was your college experience like? Going to Berkeley College of Music was actually a great uh, thing for me. Uh, my... 
my mother went to the University of North Texas, which is known, you know, as a great as a great uh, jazz school down in Texas. And I wanted to go to uh, the new school up here in New York. So, you know, my mom wanted me to stay close to home, and I wanted to go to New York. So uh, it turns out that Boston was a kind of in-between thing. And also I, I got a music ed- education degree from Berkeley, which which turned out to be a good thing for me uh, as I was, you know, interested in education and also as a, you know, as a as a fallback for my career. Um, so, you know, we did a... We did a hard, you know, push and pull. You know, she was like, stay in Texas. I was like, no, I want to go to New York. And so then it turns out that one of my best buddies, Walter Smith, was going up there to uh, to Berkeley at the same time. And also my friend Mark Kelly, who plays with uh, John Schofield. Uh, so, you know, it was a group, group of us went, uh, Glasper and Mike Marino went to New York. And then uh, me and Walter and then went to Boston. So, you know, it was good. It was good, especially good to go with friends of mine up to Boston. And we experienced a lot of things at Berkeley that uh, maybe we wouldn't have gotten in a, in a huge market uh, like uh, like New York at the time when we were young kids. Was the East Coast jazz experience different from you for, for, you, for you from the Houston experience? Uh, very much so. It's different in the energy, uh, the energy of the people, and just the the just the range of influence that's here in the city, from like indie rock to like you know to everything from African music. You know, I mean, I I had heard some of those things in Houston, but I couldn't actually go and see them. Uh, as great as the Houston is the the music scene is is not as thriving as it should be uh as far as the the venues in Houston are great but unfortunately they're lacking in uh the programming right now uh so when I got up to the east coast and I could go and see people like Fela Kuti and like all these different people you know I was like oh snap now I can go out and hear some music, not only just listen to the CDs, but go and see the players, you know, because the East Coast is just more readily available. When you left Berkeley, uh, did you move right to New York after that? Yeah, I moved right to New York. I was really blessed to uh, start playing with the Crusaders and Joe Sample and the Crusaders right out of college. <laughs> the crazy thing was on, on my graduation day, Terrence called me to play with him. And I was like, oh, man, I'm already playing with the Crusaders. So... After I finished playing with the Crusaders in October, well, I started in mid-June, July with uh, the Crusaders. Of what year? Of 2003. Then in October, I started playing in Terrence's band, and I've been in Terrence's band ever since. What was that day like, the day you got your first big professional game? I mean, it was pretty scary because I had never been in an audition process like that. I mean, it wasn't like there were many people there, you know, behind me or whatever. It was like... They flew me out there just to audition. They flew, you know, they gave me a hotel room. They brought me to SIR and was just like, okay, set the drums up, let's play, you know. So we played for three days, you know. For three days we rehearsed the music. And I guess, you know, he liked the vibe that we got. And uh, that was it. We rolled with it. But it was really intense as far as 
the history of the Crusaders themselves because the, the Crusaders are like one of Houston's greatest bands, you know what I mean? Was it difficult to leave them and go with Terrence Blanchard's band? It was pretty difficult, but to some extent, I I felt that my music, the way I wrote music and played music, was more aligned in what Terrence is doing. And that's why I've been so fortunate to be with him for this many years. I really think that the path that Terrence has taken and is going in is more aligned with what I, what I, what I do the best. Meaning so, what? Stylistically, I play more of... of more of an open style, uh, not as, uh, I don't want to say not as groove-oriented, but not as statically groove-oriented, more open and, and more, more lyrical. And it seems like Terrence's band has allowed you some freedom as a composer as well. Yeah, uh, Terrence's band has, has been great. Uh, this Tuesday, uh, Terrence's new CD comes out. It's called A Tale of God's Will. And the second piece on my CD called Mantra is actually on Terrence's CD, and I rewrote it for orchestra. The CD is meaningful in this time because it, it, it actually touches on the subject of Hurricane Katrina, which Terrence is a uh, he's a resident of New Orleans, so it's it's really dear to his heart and it's really dear to all of us. So he asked us each to contribute a composition, and I contributed my composition mantra. That's going to be something uh, that's really that's going to touch a lot of people's lives because I feel that it shouldn't be forgotten and that it's still going on. People are suffering down there. What was it like to hear that performed by an orchestra? Uh, that was really, it was really daunting because, uh, you know, I wrestled, I wrestled so much with, you know, Terrence telling me to actually, well, he told me that we were going to do it, and then he asked me, did I want to write it? And I was like, well, you know, I wrote the song, you know, what, Terrence, why don't you, you know, you're a great composer and arranger, so I was like, why don't you arrange it? And he was like, no, why don't you arrange it? And, you know, I've never done anything like that before. The thing I loved about Terrence is he gives us the freedom and he trusts in us enough to give us the freedom to do that. So he just put it all in my hands. And uh, 
you know, I just went to town with it and just <laughs> I just did the best that I could with it and it and it turned out well, you know. And then when I came in to uh when we came in to record it, we did the band tracks first and then we came in with the orchestra and I so, you know, I handed them the music and I was like, Okay, so when you're conducting I was just listening to this part, could you tell them to do this and do that? And he was like, Uh no you can go out there and conduct the orchestra yourself. So I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so so he told me to go out there and do that. But I had some conducting experience from school, you know, being a music ed major. But I had never, like, really used it. So it was just really daunting. That's why I say it was daunting to go out there and stand in front of 40 people, 50 people, and be like, and conduct, you know. It's interesting that, you see yourself as a more a lyrical writer than a rhythmic writer, obviously given the instrument that you play. Why do you think that's the way your writing has evolved? Well, even from my, my days as a young kid in church, I just remember always singing. And the thing that gave me the most goosebumps was singing. Not really the drums playing a lot of fills and all that stuff. It was just singing a song and that note or that chord hitting you a certain way. And I always like when I play, I actually feel that when it, when I when I hear that. So I always wanted to try to recreate that feeling in composition, and uh, so it just always turns out that you know that my songs just come from a complete lyrical standpoint because most of my songs I write them by singing. That's my quote unquote secret to writing my songs. Like if pretty much if I can't sing the song, you probably it's probably not my tune. <laughs> so, so that's the thing and sometimes I kind of regret not being able to write all these sophisticated you know rhythmic tunes you know and, and I think some of that will be on the new record but it's still not going to be like the same I mean it, it's not going to be a rhythmically overbearing thing it'll be just things to fit the melodies and I think one of the main things is for the Oracle band, which which is the concept is the band, is to give the messages to the people. I think I don't want to cloud the messages with too much rhythm where it can't readily go to the listener and them go home and sing it. You know what I mean? I want I want the listener to go to go forth after they hear the C D with the with the melodic content in their mind and not just rhythmic content. Which both are great. But I just think melodic content will always stick with you. Do you think that has something to do with why you play in a more open style because it allows room for the melody? Yeah. I do I do think I I play like that because I'm always listening to the melody and the way the chords move and uh I try to accentuate different things in in the music that maybe other people don't pay attention to that get looked across when when you're looking at the whole scheme of the song. And I noticed that most of the greats one of the most awesome things about them is their attention to detail and the and the subtlety in their playing. And that's what I'm as I grow older, I'm I'm becoming more and more attracted to the subtleties other than, you know, all the great drum solos and all of that. Even though I would love to attain that, you know, and I'm still practicing towards, you know, playing great drum solos and drum features. But the subtleties I'm finding are actually the hardest things to do. You know, when I was studying high school, when we would study uh, the snare drum or study timpani, actually one of the hardest things to do was pull the sound out of a timpani while playing, like, at pianissimo or, you know, or, or even at a softer volume. So 
I'm learning that the subtleties are actually harder than to do all the other stuff. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I really like the record and uh, and the work that you're doing with Terrence, and I'm glad that you came on the show. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it. That's Kendrick Scott from his new album, The Source. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. The site also features a link to the Jazz Session Cause of the Month. This month, it's the VH1 Save the Music Foundation. Please click the link and give them some money. Thanks. For more interviews and reviews, you can visit allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find my writing there, beside that of many other jazz experts and fans. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can contact me via email at jason at thejazzsession.com or call the show at 585-473-5304. The Jazz Session also has a mailing list available at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the world of Jason Crane. The theme music for The Jazz Session is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening. Bye.